0: Well, hello and uh, welcome back to the Sensei Reform Podcast. My name is Zach. I'm here with Pastor Brandon, and we are co pastors of Westside Reform Church, and we're delighted that you join us this week for our episode of the Sensei Reform Podcast. Uh, this week, we've decided to talk about something that is somewhat controversial for those who are someone new to the calvinistic and reformed uh, tradition and that is a doctrine that that is um, oftentimes called uh, limited atonement Uh, sometimes it's also called a particular uh, redemption and we want to spend some time discussing that today in hopes of recognizing that the offense maybe isn't quite as great as it is oftentimes made out to be. Mm -hmm. And to clarify um, maybe some things that are, you know, some of the the rough edges and uh, the the unnecessary uh, offense that that can uh, arise from it. But uh, just to briefly uh, get us started, um, typically the language of limited atonement comes from the acronym that's used within the English language of TULIP. And uh, TULIP is used to summarize the five points of Calvinism And it goes along the lines of T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for the preservation or perseverance uh, of the saints. And so the L, the limited atonement, is probably the point where people uh, feel most uncomfortable. And that L for limited atonement is then contrasted then with the so-called Arminian view of unlimited atonement. But I think it's worth noting up front, just as we begin to talk about what we mean when we use this kind of language, that whether you're on the Calvinist side of things or on the Arminian side of things, the Augustinian side or the semi-Pelagian side, another way of speaking about it, everyone needs to limit, quote unquote, the atonement in some respects. That's just the reality of it. Unless you're a complete universalist that believes that everyone, uh, Christian, Muslim, atheist, Hindu, everyone, no matter how good, no matter how bad, everyone is atoned by Jesus Christ and goes to heaven and the new creation. If you believe that, okay, that's your thing then, I guess. But anybody else who is even remotely Orthodox does not believe that. And so what that means is, everyone has some quote-unquote limits uh, for the atonement. And so the important thing is to figure out what does the Bible teach in terms of uh, the atonement in order that we uh, teach it and understand it uh, uh, correctly. And so when we talk about limited atonement from a reformed or Calvinistic perspective, the place where we would quote-unquote limit the atonement is with respect to its efficacy toward whom is the atonement powerfully efficacious? We would say that it's powerfully efficacious toward the elect, toward God's elect alone. It is not powerfully efficacious toward the uh, those who are passed over, oftentimes called the, the reprobate. And so that, that is where we would quote-unquote limit the atonement. The Arminian, on the other hand, the semi-Pelagian, on the, ha- on the other hand, would limit the atonement in terms of its efficacy. They say, oh, Jesus died the same way for everyone. So in other words, it's not really efficacious toward anyone in particular. The efficacy of the atonement comes back to rely upon you and your decision. You make it efficacious by what you do, rather than the atonement being in and of itself powerfully efficacious to convert and save sinners. So in other words, both sides need to limit the atonement some way. The Reformed limit its efficacy as being efficacious toward the elect. The Arminian uh, limits it in terms of it is, um, it is not efficacious toward anyone in particular. It's just broad and the same for everyone in, in, um, in
1: a generic sense. So, Brandon, how might how you kind of chime in on this? I've been talking too much. Oh, no, <laughs> no you know, I, th- I think that's right, yeah. I mean, everybody's going to limit the atonement. Um, uh, for, for, for whom did Christ die? And that's, that's kind of the question here, right? Um, did Christ die in the same way for every single person or, or only for the elect, only for those whom God has chosen? So yeah, here's kind of the, the debate. And like you said, everybody's going to limit it the Armenians are going to limit um, the, uh, the efficacy, so they're going to say it's not uh, efficacious, uh, it's, but it's broad in scope, where we would limit its scope, but maximize its effectiveness so are we maximizing effectiveness or maximizing the scope of it and that's kind of where some of this debate is but as we turn to the bible and you know i think it's helpful to 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 go through some passages because one of the charges by the semi-pelagians is well it's just not in the bible you know the limited atonement isn't taught anywhere and and all we see is this universal uh kind of atonement he's died for everybody and so I think it's helpful to see, you know, the Bible actually does speak in this way. The Bible speaks in, in terms of Christ dying for, specifically, his people. Uh, so, for example, Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again, very, very specific. Who is he going to save? His own people. Uh, Matthew 20.28, 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So there's many people that he's going to give his life for. That's not a universal statement, but it's, it's still a large kind of number, many people. Uh, John 10.11, uh, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Who's he laying his life down for? The sheep. In John 17, 9, Jesus says, I am praying for those who you have given me out of of this world. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In other words, Jesus has a special people in view, and that's those who the Father has given him, those who the Father has elected, predestined from the foundation of the world. Those are in his special eyes, and I'm praying for them, not praying for... For the world, I'm praying for those whom you have given me out of the world, and so I think that's a very important statement. What Jesus is saying in, Matthew, in John 17:9. In Acts 20:28, 20, um, Paul is saying, "Be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood." So He obtained what with His own blood? The church, the church of God. Uh again, not a universal statement, but a very particular statement. Uh, Ephesians 5:25. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus again giving himself up for the church. A, a, a very particular statement. Uh, two more for our for our consideration. Hebrews 2:17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service to God, to make propitiations for the sins of the people. But in context, there again he's speaking about a very kind of a particular people. He's making propitiation. Now, that word propitiation means you are t- removing the wrath of God. You're pacifying the wrath of God upon a people. And, um, and then finally in Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. So you know, it's great the scope here, you know various tribes and peoples, languages, nations, but it's people from them. Again, not a universal, he, he, he doesn't say he ransomed all tribes, language, people. He said, no, people out of each one, particularly, have been, have been redeemed. With
0: all this language, it's never the language of mere possibility, is it?
1: No. It's a
0: language of accomplishment. That's right. That he ransomed them. Mm-hmm. He didn't just make it available. Right. He made propitiation. He pacified the wrath of God for them. He just make it a theory, mm-hmm. a possibility that maybe they may or may not, by their own volition, mm-hmm. uh, put into effect. We know he did it, right? And we celebrate the Lamb who was slain, right? Absolutely, yeah. And
1: that, that's one of the I think the the problems with the Arminian semi-Pelagian view is you know Jesus comes down, dies in a very not uh, in in a less than efficacious way and then he's like standing on the sidelines just like pleading with people oh you know if you want to come and uh, theoretically, mm-hmm. nobody might, m- might not have come in that scheme right. of things. Right. And so there's a, there's a possibility in which Jesus died for no, for no reason in, in that scheme. Mm-hmm. But no, for the Reformed, we maximize the efficacious. So when Jesus dies, he grabs you and says, You're mine. I bought you. You're saved. Boom. Done. Accomplished. And it's not a mere possibility on the sidelines. It's a grabbing and saying, You're mine bought you. So, yeah, I think that's the one of the big problems there. But, you know, the, the Armenians would point to some problem passages. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go ahead and read sure. one, of, one of those problem passages. Maybe you can kind of give some reflection on it. But it's in it's in 1 John, mm-hmm. and um, he makes an interesting statement that seems to broaden out kind of uh, the scope here. But here, here's what he, John says. Uh, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, you know, an Arminian might point to that passage and say, well, wait a second. He propitiated the sins of the entire world here. How do we understand it? What are some reflections? I think there are different
0: ways you could take that and still be Reformed Orthodox. I think mean, the way that I take that is to recognize that John is broadening the um, the the scope of, of the people of God uh, in the same way that John the Baptist cried out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he is unveiling the mystery that Christ came not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And it seems to me like that's what's going on here as well, is that. It's a recognition that the, the, the atonement of Christ, surprisingly, was not only for the believing Jew, but also for those among the Gentile nations who would come to faith within due time. And so that, that notion of the world really en- encapsulates then the nations, every tribe, language, people, and nation that we just read about from John's revelation, Later
1: on, is that how you take the text? Yeah, no, I think that's right. On in terms of you know, he's speaking about yeah, all of those tongues and tribes and nations out of the world, uh, those particular people who were elect. Now, I think what's that, what we also have to kind of recognize too in First John two two is when you read it on its surface, um, both the Ar- the Armenian has to make some qualifications as well, uh, right? Because it says that Jesus propitiated the wrath of God on the sins of the whole world. Now, if Jesus Again, propitiation is the removal of God's wrath. If he removes God's wrath from everybody around the world, then guess what? Everybody goes to heaven no matter what you did or, or who you are or what you believe. Uh, and then you become a universalist if you kind of read that text in a very shallow, service-level way. So even the Armenian is saying, well, no, because you still have to believe in order to tap into that propitiation. And they're gonna have to make some qualifications with what John is actually saying here. But 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 so too, uh for for the reformed, as we're understanding, yes, he propitiated, but if he mm-hmm. you propitiates your sin, you go to heaven. It means the wrath of God, the wrath of God is no longer on you. And so, uh, <clears throat> and so um, the, the, the Arminian is saying, well, those who believe, and the Calvinist is saying, well, those who believe are elect, right? Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, as we understand the text in terms of, um, we're, we're both coming to it and realizing, well, it's not a kind of service level universalism. That's not what's going on here in the text, uh, but, but but what's what's actually happening. And also realizing the way in which the New Testament uses the word world um, it uses it in different ways. Sometimes it means um, uh, kind of that surrounding Jewish nation. It can be spoken of as the world. Uh, so the, it, it can be different. It, it could be spoken of in different ways. It's it's not always global in view. But even when it is global in view, oftentimes it's speaking again about the different nations and languages and tribes and peoples, and uh, and and out of which God has God has chose to to save. So. I don't think that that's a problem passage. In fact, I I don't think that, I I think all of these problem passages that the Arminian might want to bring up are not really problems when we understand it uh, properly. If I could just jump in, one thing that I think we've been touching on a little bit Mm -hmm.
0: that maybe we should uh, bring out more clearly is as we're talking about things and reading from like uh, the book of Hebrews or as you reflect upon 1 John 2, one of the things that we're operating with in the back of our minds is an understanding of the types and shadows from the Old Testament that help us to understand the atonement of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That he came as a priest to offer sacrifice and to intercede. And if we think about that Old Testament type and shadow and what's occurring there, then we're seeing a high priest in Israel who is offering up sacrifices and interceding and he's doing that for whom? The people of God. He's not offering up sacrifices on behalf of Babylon or on behalf of Assyria. He's offering up sacrifices for the people of Israel, which, yes, includes some from the nations who have gathered and become part of that multitude. But it's, it's a, it, there's a, a particular scope for it that's definite. Mm-hmm. And the high priest, as he serves, he serves them as he sacrifices, he sacrifices for them. As he intercedes, he intercedes for them, not for Pharaoh, not for others, but for the people of God. And that really helps to then set the stage for all the many New Testament texts that Brandon read, but also for that language and the surprise, sort of a surprise, of the world. Of course, God promised that to Abraham, that the nations would be blessed through him, of course, but then it becomes this surprise to people who became uh, developed tunnel vision mm-hmm. to think that the Messiah would come only for the nation state of Israel. And that when the curtain is then pulled back, we have this language then to emphasize the fulfillment of that Abrahamic promise that's not only for the Jew, but really it encompasses the whole world that is, people from every tribe language, people, and nation. So I want to bring that out a little bit, some of the background I think we've been working with, maybe assuming a little bit.
1: Yeah, I know that's hopeful. Um, Maybe we could turn our attention to the canons of Dort, because there was a reformed synod that uh dealt with this matter as the ramon Strons, the semi plagian arminians were were bringing up some of the some of their objections they reformed s- syn mm-hmm. and uh kind of deliberated on this matter and they had some i think helpful wording yeah absolutely and I think it uh, actually gets at some of the
0: unnecessary objections people raise toward mm-hmm. um this doctrine because I think one of the things that has happened is that over the course of time. The, the language concerning the atonement has maybe become um, overly simplistic mm-hmm. and maybe not recognizing some of the important nuance no. that the Reformed forefathers have employed. Mm-hmm. And as the Synod of Dort um, uh, engaged with five uh, objections from the Arminians, it put forward heads of doctrine that would answer that. And they did not answer it according to Tulip. But rather, they unpack things very carefully and they, they use language that were coming from the church fathers, both from the early church and from the medieval church. And this is one of the places where they did that very carefully. They use a distinction that was made by um, one of the great theologians of the medieval church, Peter Lombard, and then picked up by uh, Thomas Aquinas. And it was used to speak then about the atonement of Jesus. And there's a twofold distinction that's made it speaks about the value of Christ's atoning work, and then it's efficacy. These are two things that need to be held uh, together, and actually the the canons of Dort don't even use the language of limited atonement. They prefer to speak of the language of the the value, the worth, and then the efficacy. And so let's hear uh, what the canons of Dort says. This is in the second head of doctrine, article three, titled the infinite value. Of Christ's death. And here's what it says This death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. And so that's one of the things that can oftentimes be left out from these conversations about the limited atonement. Mm-hmm must understand we're affirming the infinite value of Christ's atonement. And that was appointed by God to have an infinite value, and Christ accomplished an infinite value. And then if you go on from in the second head of doctrine from Article 3 to Article 8, then what we read is it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father, that the enlivening and saving effectiveness, this is the efficacy language, of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones. And so there we see then that that infinite value is is then applied effectively, efficaciously, toward a particular people. And it goes on to speak about how that the blood of the cross would effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language, all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to the Son by the Father. And so there we see that that value uh, versus the uh, effectiveness uh, distinction that's, I think, so helpful to guard against some of the possible misunderstandings of the
1: doctrine of limited atonement,
0: anything else you'd say on that, Brandon?
1: Uh, no, I think it's helpful. You know, it's sufficient for the whole world, efficient only for the elect. I think that's a helpful um, thing to say because we want to recognize the value and the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross. We don't want to somehow uh, speak in ways that might diminish that, but also recognize that there was a purpose. There was a divine purpose, and that was to save the elect, the chosen ones. Um, other Reformed uh, theologians, especially those in like the Puritan kind of branch of the uh, Reformation, John Owen, for example, in his book, the uh, death of death and the death of, of Christ. Mm-hmm. Is that it, right? <laughs> and, um, You know, and I think Spurgeon even speaks this way at times, but uh, one of the other reform kind of objections or arguments, I should say, is that the idea of a, a double jeopardy where if you, if Christ pays for your sins, then why would you then pay for your sins? So, you know, how can there be kind of like a double jeopardy happening where let's say you have an unbeliever who dies in unbelief, but Christ already died for his sins and uh, pacified the wrath of God and took away his sins and he paid for those sins. Well, how then why is the the the, the man then going to go to hell for eternity to pay for sins that Christ already paid for? So how in the world does that make sense within the Arminian semi-Pelagian scheme of things? It's kind of the argument that's put forth, did Jesus not die for the sin of unbelief? Did Jesus not die for all sins, or are there some sins in which Christ did not atone for, that the man is now going to be be punished with? So I think it kind of opens up a lot of questions and a lot of problems when the Arminian is wanting to say, well, Jesus died for the sins of everybody, and then you have some people here going to hell and paying for their sins for all of eternity. So there's kind of a, a juggling that has to happen, I think, on the Arminian side of things. It makes more sense to understand the sufficiency for all, the efficiency only for the elect, I think.
0: Anything else? That's right. I think maybe we'll, we'll close here and say that the reason this matters is that we want Christ to receive all the glory that he is due. And if we take the Arminian path of things and you ask that question, what is the reason that you are saved and someone else is not? The ultimate reason that the Arminian has to get to is that he or she exercised his or her free will to make then the cross of Christ effective. And so it really comes back to the choice and will of the person that is the, um, uh, the factor that uh, changes things. However, from the Reformed and I would contend the biblical perspective, all the glory goes to Christ in his atoning work. Why is someone saved and someone else not? Because the death of Christ was effective. Because the death of Christ purchased, redeemed, ransomed, the death of Christ saved that person who did not deserve it, who deserved to be left in his or her sins, subjected to the ultimate judgment of God in the end, apart from the death of Jesus Christ. And so that is the reason why this matters is that Christ, in his death and resurrection, might then receive all the glory for the work that he has performed on behalf of his church, not just sufficient for the whole world, but efficient for the elect, those whom God had given him from eternity.
1: I think it also helps us to understand also I think the love of Christ and the love of God because we you know it's easy to say well I, I know God loves everybody and he loves me in this general way but to say well no he chose me he wrote my name in the book of life before even creation Jesus knowing that name and knowing that individual and and, and that you know you are one, one of the, the ones in whom we're given to Christ by the Father and then he goes and dies specifically for you knowing you knowing that name a very particular love that Christ has upon you not this general I love everybody but a very particular love and also our assurance I think it rests upon Christ and what he did, whereas in the Arminian scheme of things, it's so easy to kind of wonder about your assurance and wonder about your salvation, because again, you've created man and put man at this top, this pedestal, where I'm choosing and I'm deciding and I'm whatever, and it's a man-centered approach, whereas in the Reformed world, it's a God-centered approach. God has chosen, God has done, my assurance of salvation rests on, on God and, and what he's done, feeling very particularly loved by, by Christ in what he's done. So. Excellent.
0: Well, we hope this has been helpful for you. Uh, again, this is the Cincy Reform Podcast. I'm Zach, this is Brandon. Thanks for joining us this week. We hope, I, um, invite you to check out our church as well, especially if you're in the Cincinnati area. Uh, Westside Reform Church, you can find us at westsidereforms.org. And we hope to meet you someday in worship. So thanks again. Until next week, bye-bye.